Hey, hey, it's another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman. This week, in addition to all the foosball, we've got stray bullets, we got financial chicanery, we get old-fashioned pest control, and an even more old-fashioned moral panic over how soft the youth of today might be getting. With me are two notorious hard men, Terry DeFellin and Nick Vildhagen. Terry, what's the hardest thing you've gotten up to in the past couple of weeks? I got into a fight with my kitchen cupboard door. <laughs> well, well, I guess we should see that door because, you know, the other guy is looking worse for wear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know it. You know. And I've got the big bump and the cut on my head to prove it. And the, uh, I think probably the residue of mild concussion to go into this podcast. So, you know. Anything goes. A lot of bleeding heads on talking foosball. Yeah, I was just so massively, massively jealous of your head-banging anecdote that I just wanted one of my own. But unfortunately, it's not quite as exciting. I just went down to pick up the cap of my milk and up and the door, you know how it is. The door was open, crack, much swearing, and yeah, it all went to hell. I had to cancel my trip to the cinema. Damn it to hell. (laughs) Did you do that in front of your wife? my wife who left the door open <laughs> oh <laughs> i mean <laughs> but it's fine some women might have had the tendency to say what are you doing what are you doing yeah indeed yeah no no she was good enough to not make it my fault good on her what have you endured the past couple of weeks nick maybe it's probably too late for listeners who haven't heard about your you know your terrible head injury from earlier in the summer but maybe there's an update from you yeah, my head is doing just fine. I mean, it's, it's... It looks good from here. <laughs> it's as screwed up as it usually is. Well, the, the hardest thing actually happened today. My two sons actually managed to get to Fireman Sam play things behind the cupboard in my cabin. So I had to reach behind that cupboard and fish them out. And, you know, I mean, the gap wasn't big enough for, you know, my hand to reach down. So I actually... I had to find out how I could move said cupboard, which, you know, was containing a lot of different porcelain and stuff. But, I, I, you know, I managed to do it and uh, without crushing anything. And I managed to re- retrieve both Sam and Elvis. Sam and Elvis. Excellent. Well, that is pleasing. That is a result. <laughs> a heartwarming and wholesome story. Yes. I'm not known for those, am I? <laughs> no, you're not, frankly. And just enough mild peril just to keep everyone engaged with the crockery. You know, just sort of like, I got that image of like, they the teetering crockery. Wait, <laughs> easy, easy, easy. And now it comes. Yeah, my, you know, hard man endurance is, is a combination of intentional and unintentional and a little Bundesliga thrown in. Did my weightlifting this morning. That was very much on purpose. You know, lots of squats and deadlifts. But I also managed to bang my head, ducking under the bar, uh, trying to get... <laughs> Try to rack my bar for some squats because I was I was trying to pay attention to the Mites Frankfurt game on the television Ooh. and kind of took my eye off the ball, as it were. But you know, it passed. It doesn't hurt anymore. Ugh. Lots of foosball. We should really share notes before we actually record this so that we know because I mean now I feel quite, you know, as if my head banging story is a bit underwhelming, really. I should have made something up. Like I was chopping wood or something like that. Nice. Well, you can, can get to my cabin and, and chop wood for me. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> Nick's looking for choppers all the time. <laughs> I'm not for American choppers, but for British choppers. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that might mean. Well, I think we all know perfectly well what that means. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, okay, we're, we got lots of foosball to talk about. We'll be back in just a moment with that. Please do remember you can get in touch with us anytime. 
via Twitter DM or email podcast at talkingfoosball.com. We also appreciate good reviews on Apple Podcasts if you really want to, you know, make us feel great and help us keep this podcast going. Please support us on Patreon. We get lots of timeless content over there that'll be taking you through all six decades of Bundesliga history. The Goalkeeper series is going to be starting very, very soon. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball. It's the part where we talk about, you know, the results-oriented stuff. What's going on in the Bundesliga? As we've brought up in our earlier show, we're off of our weekly schedule for, you know, Asta Bundesliga stuff. We're going to be happening every other week, interspersed with the Aufstieg that our pal Nick and Jasmine and Mike are always potting on about. But, you know, it's not really our job anymore to talk about every single game, and that would be kind of a drag this early in the season anyway. I think we can probably just put things in sort of shorthand terms right now as it stands in the Bundesliga. We got five teams who are on 100% records, six points this early juncture of the season. Unsurprising group for the most part. We got Bayern, who, of course, won the league last year. Union, who are a Champions League side at this point. We've got Leverkusen and Freiburg, who are in Europe, and then Wolfsburg, who are off to a very nice start. Anything that grabs you among those five teams? I mean, the the one thing that grabs me a little bit is, you know, our lead story or one of our lead stories from last week, which is Harry Kane, the new man of all men, the record-breaking, shirt-selling Englishman. Apparently, he's quite a good player. Three goals, an assist. But what I want to know is, can he measure up to Jonas Wind and Kevin Behrens over the course of a full season. I fully expect Kevin Behrens to replace Harry Kane next season at the Zebnerstrasse and to see Harry Kane on the bench because, you know, that quality of Kevin Behrens, who has, you know, had the, the hard school of, of, you know, learning how to be a lonesome striker at Zandhausen. It's quality. Quality all through. I mean, Harry Kane cannot measure up to that. But joking aside... I think Harry Kane scoring three goals in his first two appearances against rather, well, let's put it in charming terms, as I'd say, rather meager opponents in Werder and Augsburg is not really surprising. What would have been surprising if he'd only been on one or, you know, zero goals so far. So, no, it's, it's not really surprising. In his first goal against Werder was a deflected shot. And then obviously then a characteristically taken penalty in the his second goal against Augsburg after a VAR handball decision, which no one likes to see. Well, well, but no one likes to see it, though. You know, especially if the VAR is, you know, interfering for Bayern. I thought it was justified, though. Well, indeed, indeed. But his third goal was more in the kind of classic, the kind of goal Harry Kane has been hired to score. And so, yeah, I mean, I agree with Nick. I think that there's something to do with the quality of the opposition that's going on here for Harry Kane. But, you know, as someone who has observed, I mean, you know, I, mean, you know, I don't get any extra insights. I live in England. I mean, lots of people know how good Harry Kane is. I mean, he scored a lot of goals for sometimes what have been a fairly indifferent Tottenham side. You know, he does know where the back of the net is and he'll know where the back of the net is or whoever he's playing up against. But we will learn, you know, in the coming weeks, I think they've got to play Leipzig. They've got to play Leverkusen as well. 
Uh, so I want to know a little bit more about them. But when he's banging in goals against them, then I think we can then start comparing him favourably to Kevin Behrens. <laughs> well, well, what about Jonas Vind then? Well, yeah, I mean, that's an amazing story. Is that we're both, Behrens is a fantastic story, of course, because Union is just a fantastic story. But Jonas Vind, yeah, again, I mean, it's just a, it's a perfect start to the season and, and you love to see it, don't you? I mean, and yeah, I, it's nice to see these kind of early pace setters, you know, in the Bundesliga. They make for nice early doors narratives while we're waiting for, you know, for results to pan out and to see, you know, where the next crisis is coming from in Dortmund. Sorry, I mean, the next crisis is coming from. I mean, Union Berlin have definitely made the best headlines so far this season. I mean, Robin Gosen saying that, you know, he moved to Berlin because of the Donald kebabs. I would move back there for the kebabs alone. Totally. There you go. I mean, you and Robin. So, uh, well, he had, he had his starting lineup debut this weekend and, uh, you know, scored a couple against Darmstadt. It's just all going like everything that that club does is just the right decision at the moment. It's really annoying. <laughs> Kevin Behrens, who, you know, was on the verge of signing for Werder back then. He joined Union Berlin. Yeah, look at him now. I mean, four goals in two games and, um, you know, making positive headlines because he's actually taking the bicycle home from the home matches, which is, uh, you know, refreshing. Uh, you know, a striker not driving some Maserati or camouflage painted Lamborghini. Where does he live then? I can't imagine a footballer would want to live in Copenhagen. Not to say Copenhagen is terrible, but it's just not that swank. Yeah, you know, I mean, he played for Sandhausen. That's the definition of anti-swank, isn't it? It's true. It's true. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a good when he scores in the Champions League, and he will score in the Champions League. It'll be all the you know the Champions League scorer who takes the bike home from wherever it is he actually lives. It's going to be great. Niklas Fulger surely didn't imagine that his biggest competitor for the Germany spot on the starting lineup for the Euros in 2024 would be Kevin Behrens. Well, we are somewhat through the looking glass when it comes to the German national team in general, aren't we? It's got to be said. You know, I mean, Hansi Flick is probably looking at the Bundesliga and thinking, oh, who the fuck can I nominate who I haven't gotten on board yet and who has some quality? Because right now everything looks like a pile of shit, really. Pile of shit. Speaking of piles of shit, <laughs> Brendan Aronson, one of the other uh, new faces in uh, Kopenick, of course had a very nice debut with a sort of a backheeled hockey assist. He's the one who set up the cross that ended up as a Kevin Behrens headed goal. So kind of impressed on his debut, but uh, did not impress in game two for Union. A very stupid, you know, double yellow sending off. First for time wasting, second for an ill-judged and late challenge. I can't say that it will necessarily come back to haunt him because it ended up as a big win for Union instead of uh, what you might have expected for a team going down to 10 men fairly early. But I can't imagine that that's going to uh, add to his brilliant reputation within that squad or within that uh, fan base. Ah, uh, well, I mean, everyone screws up every now and then, and um, I mean, screw ups are more easily forgotten if teams win. I mean, his luck, I suppose, is the fact that they faced the Darmstadt side, and this Darmstadt team is just poor. I mean, all three of us are pretty much in agreement that they are big, big time contenders to just go down yeah I don't think that uh, I mean I mean I know Union are good but you know and good with 10 men but 4-1 at home for the most of the game against 10 men that is yeah that's not a great confidence booster it's got to be said for Darmstadt uh, and for their prospects for the season so there's some well he has some work to be done there 
Yeah, yeah. Maybe we should talk not only about Darmstadt, but about the other teams who have yet to earn a point this season. We'll get to the one that's probably causing a bit of a furrowed brow over there in Stavanger. Heidenheim, very bitter pill for them this weekend. They were up 2-0 at home to Hoffenheim in their first game, first home Bundesliga game in the top flight. You know, pouring rain for most of that game, so not exactly the most (laughs) inviting fan atmosphere, but they were very psyched to be up 2-0 against Hoffenheim. It all melted away in the last half hour of that game. Cologne, also on no point, also Werder Bremen, Nick. What's your take on what's happening there? It was kind of a bitter loss this weekend after a bad, you know, thumping loss on opening night. But what's your level of worry at the moment? Well, my level of concern is starting to get elevated after, you know, being kicked out of the cup by a third division team. Well, that 4-0 loss against Bayern is something that you can pretty much expect it. But I think it's worrying that the, you know, as the match progressed, the team sort of started to hang on by a thinner and thinner threat and were punished in the end. I mean, the juice has sort of started running out after the 70-75 minute and uh, Freiburg got that lucky punch in. Nice goal, though. I mean, Maximilian Philip finished that very nicely on his big, big return to the team. Great cross, too. Yeah, I mean, I think he actually scored the last time these two teams played against each other as well. But back then, he scored for Bremen, that being a side note. Yeah, it was a nice goal. But at the end of the day, you need to defend that better. And you need to, you know, be able to actually try to get on the counter-attack and maybe, you know, create a couple of attacks on your own in the last 10, 15 minutes of a match. And Voto simply weren't able to do that. And... That happened actually quite a lot in the Rückrunde of last season as well. I just remember that match against RB Leipzig where Werder Bremen basically threw away a 1-0 lead and lost 2-1 in the end. And again, it's just those defensive mishaps and those defensive screw-ups that tend to happen whenever, you know, 80 or 85 minutes have been played. And, and that is the team still doing those things is worrying. I mean, the same sort of happened against Bayern as well. I mean, they were 1-0 down. They had a couple of chances at the start of the second half. And, you know, after the, I think it was the 70, 75th minute, they just conceded another three goals. Mm. You would have thought that Werder Bremen, aside that lacks in quality, would have actually focused on endurance. I mean, endurance is one of those things that poor sides can use to, you know, get one over better sides if they can keep going for longer. But obviously, Werder Bremen can't do that. And if that, you know, lasts for the entire season, this is going to be a huge problem. How much do you think that that is? Is it, in fairness, they've played two very high quality sides so far this season who are going to work the teams a lot harder. I thought Bayern didn't play very well in the first half or that one in the first half against them. But I think Werder did quite well and made a game of it for the neutral, so to speak, even though I don't think there was any doubt as to what the result would be. But do you think, Nick, that a lot of these, I mean, you know, Bayern and Freiburg, two top six sides, you know, maybe when they're playing teams, you know, around them or wherever that might be, they might be able to endure a little bit longer? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the proof is in the pudding when, you know, Bochum and Köln and Heidenheim and Darmstadt come around and then you'll see what is what, basically. Because, uh, I mean, if, if the same sort of things happens against Bochum and uh, against Heidenheim and against Darmstadt, against Köln... Yeah, then you really should start to worry a lot more. Any quick thoughts? I mean, I I think Darmstadt and Heidenheim were among the teams most of us thought were going to be down here at this juncture and maybe will be staying there for the duration. 
Cologne is another source of worry. Perhaps this is a team that has you know exceeded expectations, especially two seasons ago, but to a lesser extent last season as well. Is the shine coming off a bit of the Baumgart era Cologne? Well, if you remember when we did our preview show, we although we didn't include Cologne in our predictions for relegation, I think we did collectively express concern that had the squad grown sufficiently, Baumgart's done a fantastic job galvanising and energising that team. But they've had a, lost a couple of good players and you're not quite certain whether or not they've got the cutting edge to score goals and win games. I, I thought they competed really well against Dortmund. Yeah. Um, were super unlucky not to get a point out of that, I've got to be honest. And although they did lose against Wolfsburg, you know, obviously, you know, Wolfsburg had the wind at their backs to a certain degree. And then maybe on another day that result might have been different. So I would still withhold judgment on Cologne until a few more games into the season and then we'll see what they're really like. But it goes back to Nick's point about resilience. And that I think is something that Cologne definitely have is that they don't give up. And I think I think you've got to look even at this early stage at Darmstadt and Heidenheim and think these are probably the two of the worst teams in the Bundesliga. And so you've got to be worse than one of those two, really, if you think you're going to get relegated. And I don't know whether or not Cologne come into that category, but they could be in for a difficult and unpleasant season. I think they're most definitely going to be in the bottom half. And, you know, I mean, we expressed concern about the two Rhine sides, Gladbach and Cologne. I think Gladbach were... Pretty topsy-turvy in that match against Augsburg. Against Leverkusen, they were really outdone. Leverkusen just played cat and mouse with them, and uh, that was pretty quickly over. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that Hoffmann and Jaka had good performances in that match must have really stung the Gladbach soul and heart. You know, at this stage, I'd actually be still more worried about Gladbach than about Cologne, given that they actually had two decent performances against two of the better teams in the league. All right, let's sort of leave some of this um, result mulling and prognostication aside and talk about some of the fun stuff and worrying stuff and, you know, thought-provoking stuff that's been happening in the Bundesliga over the past couple of weeks. One that probably goes into the worrying uh, category more than anything is one that's, that's absolutely no joke. It is a story that came out of Gladbach's visit you know, we got to worry about them on the field and, and apparently maybe off as well. A fan bus parked outside the stadium at Augsburg, the first match day of the season. That's where they were during the game. But before anybody got back on the bus, a police officer, a Bavarian state police officer, and I'll spare you a lengthy explanations about how police work in Germany. But, you know, generally it's a state matter. Discharged his service weapon and shot through the bus or you know, into the bus. I mean, the bus was empty, so no one was hurt there. But, you know, there, at least a couple of the police officer's colleagues, you know, had some minor hearing problems, having a shot go off next to them. What in the world could this person have been thinking? There was very little in the way of details about how this happened. But I can only imagine that this is something that will require a lot of disciplining and perhaps a little bit of soul searching about why police officers need to be armed at Bundesliga matches. Yeah, I mean, why do you bring loaded weapons? I mean, what's the point of using loaded guns? I mean, you're not chasing murderers like in any of those uh, things we like to watch on television. You're just handling a bunch of football fans, and football fans tend to be, you know, even if they are 
a wee bit drunk and uh, they're singing unpleasant songs, they tend to be docile creatures. So I don't think you need to be armed. And what also struck me, it must, must, must have been really unpleasant to get back to the bus for those Gladbach fans to just see, oh shit, somebody shot our window and it must have been the Bavarian State Police. Yeah, it's really odd how, you know, it, I mean, football is a entertainment. It's a leisure activity, fundamentally, isn't it? I mean, I mean you would organise an outdoor concert, you know, on a lovely summer's day where, you know, you'll have, you know, revelers and families and people coming to enjoy themselves. You might be surprised to see, you know, well, any kind of significant security turning up, but certainly armed police and wonder what that's all about. But because football has, there's an attitude towards football fans from authority in general, that they are dangerous. And this is an attitude, I think, that's born from a certain degree of sort of like historic experiences of potential and past violence and hooliganism. But in reality, I think is really born from the fact that yeah, as Nick says, football fans can be leery and they can be, you know, you know, and at times behave antisocially. They can be rude and overbearing, but that's not an excuse to turn up at a football match carrying a gun, even if you are a policeman. That's there's no justification for it. What are you, you're not you're not going to just take your gun out and start shooting football fans because they're drinking too much and they're singing, you know, it's sort of like you know uncouth songs. It's it's just really, you know, uh, it's just extraordinary and i mean it just it should be illegal it should not be allowed to happen i mean and yeah i mean as you say i mean you know, the fans turning up there and i have no i'd have been mortified if i turned up there and found that there was a bullet hole in my i don't wonder what has happened in the meantime yes i mean to add to terry's point i mean yes there's a bit of anti-social behavior there's a bit of uncouth songs in that but i mean to put it into another context would you turn up at one of boris johnson's parties with a gun because you will find the same sort of behaviour there. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Are you besmirching the honour of the Bullingdon Club? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a class issue too. I would suggest to you, I can't speak to the German experience, but I would suggest to you, I mean, obviously uh, there aren't that many guns, I mean, police in the UK, so, so it's a slightly different. But, you know, you wouldn't get that kind of heavy-handed policing at the Cheltenham Festival or at an England Rugby Union match. No. You know, you don't get that level of security and policing because even though the people who attend those events are quite capable of being just as drunk, just as leery and just as antisocial, it's just that the class of those people tends to be such that they engender more respect from the authorities than, frankly, working class people and the largely working class audiences that attend football matches. And for me, that's really where it stems from and why it shouldn't be allowed. It just simply shouldn't be allowed. It's just class snobbery and it's just it's not nice. My injusticia is, is not as blind as she appears to be on the cover of Metallica's and Justice For All album, that might suggest. But, I mean, the main problem here is that football fans, you know, they do like to provoke, they do like to, you know, stick it to the authorities. And some police forces in Germany, they act like they're in competition with those football fans. I mean, hooligans have taken their sort of behavior to the fields outside of, you know, mostly outside of the public's view. But police officers or policing units, some of them actually are sort of in like competition with away fans. Oh, yeah. And there just seems to be a philosophy among some 
people who work in that sort of crowd control subset of policing who think that a show of force, whether it's numbers of police officers, whether it's riot gear being deployed, whether it's you know making sure people have service weapons which are visible to people, they just think that that's the way to keep people in line. And I think they're mostly wrong about that. I think there are very few problems that football fans could cause that guns would solve. I mean, guns have one purpose only. I mean, you've never heard anybody say, yes, darling, hand me my gun. I need to do some gardening. Not in this country. Maybe in Matt's country. I don't know. But uh... Oh, come on. Come on. It's, I'm sure it's been done. I think in the depths of YouTube, there's probably someone who's showing you how you can use your AR as a, as a, as a means of planting seeds very deep in the earth. Uh, let's, let's move things along. Let's talk uh, about sort of a more financially highbrow uh, boardroom whatever issue this is about Falafel Wolfsburg they surprised a few people recently by showing up on the top of the kit sponsorship money league shall we say i think it's probably sensible to assume that the team that brings in the most money in terms of commercial revenue that wins the most things that you know has the highest international profile FC Bayern München you would think that they would be the team that is getting paid the most to have a sponsor logo on their chest, telecom in their case. But it's not true. Falfell Wolfsburg, a rather less popular club, actually get paid, what, 20% more? Bayern are only making $50 million a year to have telecom on their chest. Falfell Wolfsburg, who are, of course, owned in part by Volkswagen, are getting paid 60 a year to advertise that particular brand of cars. I mean, isn't this just another means of sort of circumventing some of the sort of regulation that goes on around how a club is financed? I mean, that's ridiculous that they're paying that much money to sponsor a club that they own. I mean, I know that there's going to be lots of accounting, you know, putting beans in the right bins for both, you know, profits and losses and taxes and all that. But like, this is a joke. This is stupid. I mean, yes, you could assume that Volkswagen took a very hard look at, you know, the implications of sponsoring one of the most hated teams within Germany. I don't think that they're hated, though. They're just sort of ignored. Or, or maybe yeah, one of the teams that people are the most indifferent to then. But anyways, I mean, look, sponsoring a team of that, let's say, caliber... And they thought long and hard and, and said, yes, this is worth 10 million more than, you know, having this shirt logo of Bayern Munich. It's a mid-table site. It's a club that barely sells out its stadium most of the times. They actually had to admit that they had reduced their stadium capacity by over 1,000 seats since 2006. They hadn't told anyone before 2023. So whenever it said sold out in the paper, it said 30,000 spectators. But actually, the, the stadium has less than 29,000 spectators now because they have, you know, sort of um, removed some seats around the edges, you know, visual impairment and stuff and taken into consideration and removed those seats. So, yeah, it's, it's obviously a joke that this is worth 60 million euros. I mean, if you look at TV crowds, if you look at table position, you could compare them to, let's say, Union Berlin, who make... What was it, 54 million less? Or Werder Bremen, 53 million less. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I tell you that, the deal that Union struck with Paramount Plus, I mean, Paramount Plus happens to be the broadcaster in the United States that runs the Champions League, so it's nice to have a Champions League debutant. It's, 
That seems like a bargain to me, man. Six million? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a p- peculiar one, that. Because interestingly, that Union, they've had Comedy Central on the, as a sleeve sponsor for, for a couple of years as well, which is it. So they obviously had yeah, Comedy Central is owned by Viacom CBS, who also own Paramount Plus. So they've obviously got a relationship there, which is interesting. But I would have, I was surprised that the amount was of that sponsorship deal was was so low. Although it does fit quite nicely on the shirt, it should be said. If I can address the whole Wolfsburg thing, I think there's presumably there's a method of getting money through to the club that perhaps circumvents whatever financial fair play rules there are in Germany slash UEFA. So that I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was some creative accounting involved as well in terms of maybe Volkswagen's financial liabilities. You know, I'm not certainly all perfectly legal. We've seen the same sort of thing with RB Leipzig, where, you know, the club was suddenly, you know, relieved of like millions and millions and millions of its debt uh, for services provided to a certain soda producer, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically getting money for nothing for RB Leipzig. And that club is officially not owned by said Austrian soda producer. It's owned by the fans and the club members who all tend to work for a certain Austrian soda producer. But I mean... Uh, it's kind of strange that an owner, which Volkswagen is, Volkswagen owns Wolfsburg outright. I mean, they're, they're one of the two teams in the league that are owned outright by uh, a single company. It's kind of strange that the same company that owns the club is allowed to sponsor it as well. I mean, it's the most obviously glaring, gaping hole that there is within financial fair play. But after you've seen how financial fair play has been handled in terms of Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain... I would suggest to you that, you know, why should any club give fuck all about those rules? Because obviously they were meant to be broken as long as you're big enough. By comparison to Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain, this is relatively small beer. Wolfsburg and Bayer Leverkusen are kind of strange clubs because, I mean, they were initially, I think they were created as works clubs, as really a civic amenity for the factories that they served and for the workers of the factories to enjoy in their spare time. This is not an unwholesome pursuit, you know, in my opinion. But it's when they then become used to either, yes, to sort of like launder their reputation or to launder other things as well, or to be used as part of a broader play and as part of your corporate strategy. And that's when you look at it and think, well, I mean, is this entirely fair and is this the right way and appropriate way to run a football club? And I think that both Leverkusen and Wolfsburg fall in that category. And what Wolfsburg are doing is particularly sort of like naked, sort of like an obvious attempt to enrich and and, and inflate a club that's just not sustainable at the level that it's at. I mean, Nick says it's a mid-table club. I think there's possibly an argument to say that actually Wolfsburg, if left to its own devices, is a Bundesliga 2 club. Maybe even a Bundesliga club, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just got no support base. I mean, without that money, it could sink. Leverkusen's a somewhat different story because they've spent a lot of buyer money building out an extremely effective football club with good scouting, good recruitment, hiring good coaches, good players. Nevertheless, you know, both clubs exist and I would suggest are elevated by their patronage. And so they've gone beyond that kind of idea of being a civic amenity to being an instrument of corporate influence. And, you know, that's just not, I'm just not into that sort of stuff. You don't enjoy seeing like those ads on the side of the buy arena saying Monsanto asks farmers from the third world what they think about our products or, or the, you know, the shirts of, you know, Wolfsburg saying the new Volkswagen diesel 
It's emission free. It's not like the other diesel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm interested to see where this goes because it seemed to me that over the summer when the Bundeskartellamt, which is an actual governmental body in Germany, ruled that the 50 plus one rule was, you know, commensurate with, in their interpretation, German and European law. But they wanted to get rid of the loophole that, you know, Bayer Leverkusen and Falfo Wolfsburg and, and to a lesser extent other clubs have enjoyed with the life of that rules, you know, being around. I'll be interested to see what steps are actually taken concretely to sort of phase that out over the next several years. And and whether this sort of thing, like wildly overspending on a kit sponsorship, is one of those things that they're going to have to be like, you know what? Please don't do that anymore. I mean, yeah, I mean, it would be an obvious step to take to say that if you own a club outright, you shouldn't be allowed to sponsor it through kit sponsorship or in any other sort sort of fashion. I might disagree with that slightly, but again, I think it's all got to be proportionate. I think that, like, if it's a non-league club, then, for example, you know, a regional club or a local club, and it's a local organisation that sets it up, then I don't actually think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with a business sort of saying, I own this club and I'm going to put my logo on there and that's that. But it's the, the issue for me is the amount of money that's changing hands while this is going on and, and what it's all about. I don't think there's anything... If, if uh, my local club in Shoreham was to be taken over by a local firm and then they just like put their logo on there, you know, I, I wouldn't consider that to be particularly a, a big deal. Uh, but this, on the other hand, is of a, of a different magnitude. And, and so I would suggest that it needs to be a little bit more nuanced than that but I mean, the there, there principle was, there was talk about you know having fair market valuations when financial fair play came around the first time around and obviously if you would subject the Wolfsburg kit sponsorship to such an evaluation it would fall flat on his face I mean you would probably suggest that Volkswagen are overpaying 50 to maybe 53 million euros for sponsorship that you know nobody else in the entire world would pay 60 million euros for not happening. All right. We got a couple more tidbits before we can take a little break. First, I want to just bring in one that I think is a little on the, the more serious side, which I think we'd talk about for a while, but I don't think we probably should because we've been talking a while already. Stefan Baumgart, the aforementioned Stefan Baumgart, Cologne coach, joined a chorus of, you know, German football luminaries to criticize the Deutsche Fußballbund, the, you know, German FA over how they want to administer youth football on an organizational basis. Essentially, he's upset because he thinks that, you know, the plan to sort of, you know, emphasize skills-based training, small-sided training, and, you know, de-emphasizing results-oriented tournaments for younger players in the German youth system is turning maybe... Turning them soft, or basically, what did he say? He said, we're always looking for the Weichen and Zeichten or something like that. Like, it's something like the soft and shallow. Soft and mellow, Uh, soft and shallow, yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, I get it, because he's a big lug of a man. He likes things (laughs) good and hard. But, like, I think this is a complete nothing burger. Like, you know, I think, why wouldn't we want to let, like, nine-year-olds have fun instead of, like, fighting tooth and nail for a meaningless win? You know, what's wrong with that? I mean, the thing is, you know, they've researched this, Stefan, and uh, what researchers have found is that uh, skill training is the most useful kind of training in young players. So, at that age, you want to further their skills. 
You don't want to talk about tactics. You don't want to teach them like the, you know, this is a back four. Well, we can sort of go into the three-five-two formation with, you know, inverted fingers and stuff. And, you know, there's a tilted midfielder here. And yes, you're only eight years old, but Stefan, you've got to move back if you're the tilting midfielder. No, you, you want kids with skills. You want them to know how to handle a ball, which is a big part of being able to, you know, not only know the tactical side of football, but actually execute it well when you're at an older age. So I think it makes sense because this is a this has been researched, it has been described as useful. And what's so wrong about emphasizing fun for kids under the age of like 13? Don't we want our kids to have fun? I mean, I'm a parent myself and I think I want my sons to have fun if they should choose to play football. I don't want them coming home crying at the age of 6 because what Stefan Baumgart says goes and, you know, you have to teach them how to lose. I mean, they will understand that even if they start losing and keep score when they're like 12 or 13. I don't think it means an awful lot. Yeah, There's a broader play here because this is not just about producing professional footballers. It's producing, you know, activity and athleticism for and, and allowing kids and children to play and have fun and enjoy themselves and maybe become good at something and, in, and then maybe even become so good that they become professional. And, you know, the, the truly ambitious ones, the really, really good ones, the ones with that competitive spirit and the will to win, they'll surface through and it doesn't really matter whether or not what kind of training that they get. But what you, what you want to avoid is the, the more callow kids, the shyer kids, the kids who, want, who love the game, want to play, but maybe get, frankly, for want of a better word, bullied out of the way by more competitive kids or by coaches or by parents who want them to win and just say, look, you know, you can just enjoy playing football and have fun and that's all good i mean my goodness me in life how many of us we get the opportunity to find out what it feels like to lose right in life that's not an issue that's not a problem it's and as nick points out i mean this is stuff that's been researched i mean they knew it but i mean you know the dutch knew it with ajax back in the 70s right and, and 80s and 90s i mean they train their kids to make certain on small pitches and they emphasize skill and our renaissance in england is partly down to the cages in our inner cities, where the kids are encouraged to play. Yeah. And just to sort of put a lid on this topic, when I saw the article that was sort of pinned to this and, and saw all the people who were, you know, arguing against this new form of youth training, as soon as I saw that Didi Haman was against it, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it must be good because that guy is a fucking idiot. <laughs> Anyway, we'll move on to the most fun story of the week, one that I hope gives us joy down the road. And I hope that the, you know, Borussia Dortmund social media team keeps an eye on this. They've been having a problem with bunny rabbits getting into their training pitches and, you know, causing some turf issues. Nick, what have they done to sort of solve this problem? Well, I mean, um, you you would think they might have gone the conventional route of, you know, enlisting the local hunting association asking to keep an eye out. But they haven't. They've actually thought that fear is the best, you know, treatment to get bunnies away. And what do bunnies fear? Well, cobras, if they knew what they are like, but they're not <laughs> native to Germany. So bunnies fear cats. So Borussia Dortmund have gotten six cats to you know watch over those training facilities keeping the bunny rabbits away so that Emre Jean and uh, 
all the other guys will be purring in, in pure pleasure because the pitch quality is just pitch perfect. Nice. Who would be your preferred player, Terry, you know, noted Dortmund fan, to appear in like either a single social post or have a, have a season-long series of posts of, uh, you know, sort of interacting, perhaps even going on the hunt with these cats? I would either go for Emre Cat or... <laughs> Emre Jot, it's pronounced, actually. Emre Jot. Em- or, or Jamie Bino Kittens. <laughs> I've got to say, this all feels like a Warner Brothers cartoon in the making, doesn't it? <laughs> these, those, these deviant rabbits avoiding the machinations of those cats. And, and I've just really, I've just, I've also got a visage of, of, of like German equivalent of Elmer Fudd just like sitting in his shack with his blunderbuss next to go. It's like, fucking bastards. This was my moment. <laughs> ay, 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 ay. All right. We'll be back with part two in a moment. This is part two of Talking Foosball. This is the part where we sort of mop things up. We're going to head back to the more substantive, on-pitch-related stuff from here on out. There's been a few transfer updates since we last appeared together. Some of those deals just went through right before the last recording. Things like Robin Gosens or or Kevin Folland at Union. But we've had an update from Bayern München, which is to say Daniel Peretz has signed. This is... um, you know, you wouldn't think that somebody who amounts to a third-string goalkeeper, for all intents and purposes, would cause a lot of waves. But there's a little bit more to that story. Nick, what makes this so notable? I mean, there has been a lot of talk about Sven Ulreich not being good enough, or, you know, Sven Ulreich being, you know, the steady, safe hands, uh, according to Zep Meyer, who's got a great standing within the club and who used to be the goalkeeper there in the 70s. And... For all intents and purposes, Bayern actually have not trusted Sven Ulreich to now be that pair of safe hands for as long as Manuel Neuer is out. So uh, they decided to go on the hunt and they were close to signing Kepa, who in the end joined Real Madrid when uh, Thibaut Courtois got, uh, I think it was an ACL tear. So yeah, Bayern have really been sort of searching high and low. Unfortunately, since they were searching high and low, you would have imagined that they would end up in Norway, but no, they did up in Israel. Catch the aha reference later, Matt. They really didn't have that many hits in the United States. I appreciate them, but, you know, if it's not the sun always shines on TV or, you know, take on me, <laughs> just my catalog knowledge doesn't go that deep. They didn't have many lifelines in, in the US, did they? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got that. But anyways, I mean, Daniel Paris is, is a, by all intents and purposes, he's a talented goalkeeper. He's in these early 20s. You know, I mean, it's basically buying rolling the dice on a younger guy, because Sven Ulrich is up there in age, Manuel Neuer is up there in age, but yeah, I mean, it's maybe a gamble for the future, and you'll just have to see how it pans out. Obviously, he's played in a league that is not as good as the Bundesliga, and you'll have to see how good he is once he gets used to that pace, and I mean, it's one of the things that Bayern have to do, and um, right before we recorded, I actually saw that Bayern are actually also in the market for another holding midfielder. And the hottest name right now is uh, Wilfred Ndidi from uh, Leicester City. And uh, let's talk of a one-year loan there. So um, that's an interesting one as well. I mean, probably 
Terry is more qualified than me to make any sort of assumptions of how he would slide into that side. Well, I suppose I could be, yeah. I mean, Wilfred Ndidi is a fine player, a fine player Ndidi. Um, <laughs> it was right there. You had to go yeah. for it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, no, it was all seriousness. I mean, obviously played in the relegated Leicester side. Leicester side is kind of being picked clean at the moment because it's now in the championship. Needs cut down on the wage bill. I mean, he's a fine player, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking about that Bayern midfield and thinking he's probably going to be an auxiliary. But he'll, he'll probably get games and get minutes because, you know, they're going to play in every competition quite deep. So it's quite an imaginative signing. And it just goes to show, you know, I, Bayern, you know, having to have to continue the aha reference to do a little bit of blue sky thinking uh, and um <laughs> it's more of, a bit more of a deep cut reference that one listeners but uh, yeah I mean, I mean it's a not unsensible signing it's got to be said i mean i must i'm a little bit underwhelmed by it but then hey you know they can't all be harry kane can they i'm told there's only one harry kane uh okay there's another move that might be in the offing which you know is also not harry kane but isn't anything to sneeze at uh that is leonardo bonucci you know, Union had their brush with big name signing kind of go pear-shaped last winter break when it looked like they were going to sign Isco from Real Madrid, or I guess, you know, he's sort of on the outs there. I get maybe he was under contract somewhere else. Didn't come in the end. A lot of dispute over who was at fault there in the terms of the contract that that ended up happening with. But, you know, Oliver Runat was on uh, the Actuella Sports Studio, you know, big sports talk show on Saturday night did not dispel the notion that Union were interested in bringing Bonucci in 36 year old central defender so this is maybe not going to be your week in week out guy but clearly huge pedigree would that be of interest you think yeah I mean he's been crying in the rain over the Juventus <laughs> um well he's on a free as uh, as Runa confirmed I mean, it's an interesting notion to get a guy with a lot of experience who has seen it all and who can steady the team and can steady the back to that team. And I mean, Union has signed players who are up there in age time and time again, and they have sort of made it work for them. Panucci is sort of, he is in talks with Union as much as been confirmed in Italian media articles as well. But some outlets say that Panucci is sort of mulling over his options because he is a man of a certain age. I mean, he's only one year younger than me. And he has a wife and he has got kids. And for them, moving abroad is maybe not something they would like. Have you have you told his wife about the kebabs? I haven't. <laughs> I, do, I don't have a direct line to Mrs. Benucci, I'm afraid. She's one of the few Italian player wags I don't communicate with. I mean, Union definitely proposes the... Um, tastiest deal for Bonucci as a player because the other sides like Genoa they're not playing for Champions League football so the question is is it time for Daddy to wind down his career at a, at a lesser side in Italy or does Daddy still have some ambitions and tell the kids well kids suck it up you're moving to Berlin I mean he recently just reported that he's tried to come back because he's been frozen he's not playing so and he wants to come back into the squad and basically he's been told not there's He's had a bit of a social media spat, none of which, you know, is in there and he's saying, oh, and you tell me that you don't love me. You know, and it, it's a bit of a shame that it's that it's coming to an end like this, but it doesn't equate to a move to another country. I mean, obviously, it would be a fantastic challenge. It's an eminently sensible signing, I think. Or that is to say, Union have made so many good choices in terms of the transfers that you, you wouldn't want to 
disagree with it. I mean, the Ishko thing, for example, that was like, wow, that's amazing. How's that going to work? Particularly given he'd been frozen out at Real Madrid and indeed at Sevilla. Even in the end, he went to Sevilla's bitter rivals. He went to Betis and he's playing brilliantly there. So there's no reason why it wouldn't actually have worked out at Union if that had happened. So I think that they, they do make good choices. I kind of hope that it's happened, assuming that that is what, you know, the family want at this point. But he's only 36. You know, I know it's old in terms of a playing career, but I mean, like in terms of life, you know, an opportunity to move to another capital and experience a different culture and then move back to Italy. I mean, come on. Is he still living a boy's adventurous tale? Oh, you know, I was holding that one back for part two, you bastard. <laughs> See, I even have brought up AHA's greatest hits onto my, my separate tab so I can make sure to either get your jokes or maybe get one in myself. But I, I'm not that advanced in terms of AHA. Um, let's, let's round things out by looking ahead. Uh, we got a Champions League draw coming up on Thursday. There is, of course, one little slate of playoff rounds, second legs to come this week, but that doesn't involve any of the German sides. Yeah, Union, making all those good decisions, maybe buying Bonucci or, or you know, uh, paying him some money. It's on a free, as we know. They're in pot four for that draw, which means they're probably going to have a humdinger of a group. Bayern are the only German side in pot one. So, you know, they're probably going to get uh, some tomato cans of various stripe. Beifel Bay and Leipzig have, you know, probably a slightly harder nut to crack. Both of those are in pot two. And then there's the secret, the secret German side, who's not German at all, but are going to be playing in Germany throughout the group stage. Shakhtar, Shakhtar Donetsk. They're in pot three. They're playing all their home matches at uh, Haas Fouls Stadium up in Hamburg. And apparently... The hamburger public has been starving for Champions League football. I, I don't, I can't imagine why, but <laughs> they, yeah, the people at the stadium there have been offering, you know, three match ticket deals. You know, if you want to go to all the Shakhtar home games during the group stage and they've sold 30,000 of those tickets. So people, they can't wait to go watch Shakhtar play whoever they're going to play. I'm kind of impressed by that, actually. Yeah, it's a tremendous appetite for Champions League football in Hamburg, uh, as we know, and uh, laying down a magnificent challenge for the two clubs there to respond to, you'd have to say. I mean, obviously there's one club that thinks that it should be in the Champions League in Hamburg, and another club that is slightly more realistic about its place within German football. Yeah, but uh, they're obviously playing at Hamburg's ground, not at St. Pauli's, though. Indeed. Well, yes, I mean, uh, the appetite for Champions League football has always been there in Hamburg, and, you know, I mean... To be honest, if Hamburg had been a well-run club for the last 30 years, they would be in the Champions League. Uh, is there a diaspora, a Ukrainian diaspora perhaps in, in Hamburg to account for that decision to play in though so far north? I would have thought that um, that they might have tried somewhere a little bit closer. Not that anyone from Ukraine is going to be able to travel, but, you know, I mean, it just seems like a, an interesting choice. I'm just wondering what the if there's any thinking behind why, why Hamburg. I mean, it's a second-tier stadium that is of a considerable size, not too far removed in terms of distance, and that is free during Champions League and European nights. Hmm. Most of them are taken because most of these stadiums are owned by clubs that are well-run, <laughs> that play in the Champions League. Yeah, I would imagine it probably is one of the best stadiums you could get, get hold of <laughs> that isn't being played in. I mean, uh, yes, it's tragic for HSV and, and their fans that they are 
having the, the, they can share their stadium. But just to give you an idea of how well run Hamburg is, they actually booked a Metallica concert on the day they could have celebrated promotion potentially. So if Hamburg had gotten promoted last season, the fans couldn't have gone to the Volkspark Stadium to celebrate. They would have had to find someplace else in Hamburg because Metallica got their stadium, baby. Can't you celebrate while banging your head to trapped under ice? <laughs> that's, that's not a, that's not bad planning at all. That's that's expert planning, in my opinion. Because I mean, well, like Hamburg. It, well, of course. Hang on a second now. I mean, look, right, okay. So Metallica or promotion party? Metallica. Yeah, let's go with Metallica, guys, shall we? Yeah, they're the most likely to turn up after all. <laughs> Ooh, well, nothing else matters. All right, that's all for this edition of Talking Foosball. Really nice to spend time with you two boys again. Yeah, really looking forward to, you know, share some updates about, um, you know, uh, the hardships of our lives two weeks from now. I'll be in Malta, <laughs> so uh, I won't be having any hardships. So uh, I hope I'm not having any hardships anyway, so I can share some. Are you going to drink any sisk? Chisk, baby, plan. it's chisk. The plan is to drink chisk, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm drinking a beer from Eritrea tonight, so I've reached country 90 on my untapped. So um, Malta is actually one of the countries I'm missing. Mm, well, if you're a good boy, I'll bring you back some chisk. Ooh, love it. Yeah, and don't miss the uh, the pasties, these savory pastries. You can get them with, like, lentils or cheese or some kind of meat inside. They're the bomb. The bomb. Did you say pasties? Did you just pronounce it to make it sound exotic? <laughs> so they're actually pasties. They do pronounce it Pasties. differently. Yeah. They, yeah, exactly. And they're smaller than a pasty like you would get at a pasty shop. Yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll encounter them. You'll try one and you'll then have probably about six more. I'll just go in there and say, excuse me, mate, can I have some pasties, please? <laughs> it won't be the first time they've encountered that. <laughs> I don't doubt it. All right. That's all we got. Thanks to our all-star producer, Aiden Rantoul. Bis zum nächsten Mal, y'all. 